0: even if you look at the the desk at the back, uh, you will see a little tiny reminder that Apple is uh, an iconic brand uh, in our world today. It's absolutely everywhere. Uh, And it recently passed the is it $1 billion mark or whatever it was? Huge, it's been an enormously successful company. Um, and however, uh, and many of you know the story um, that it was started by two guys in a garage who started building computers. Uh, they thought they could do a better job than, uh, than the other folks who were producing computers at that time. Uh, they saw an opportunity uh, and they became very successful. Uh, But after a while, uh, one of them realized that actually if they were going to be as successful as they thought they could be, they needed to bring somebody in. They needed to bring someone in with real management skills, real marketing ability, who knew the market really well and could take them to the next level. And so Steve Jobs, uh, who was one of those two guys in the garage, uh, he set his sights on a man in the picture there, Called John Scully. John Scully. Uh, now John Scully at the time was the CEO of Pepsi Cola. Okay. He was one of the most influential and successful businessmen in all of the United States. So clearly uh, Steve and his partner had set their targets very high. Uh, They wanted to bring in the best of the best uh, to take them to the next level. And so Steve organized a meeting, went to talk with with John, uh, and effectively said to him, in order to try to persuade him to come and join their little company, um, moderately successful company, um, they said, look, write your own salary, or name your own salary, write your own job description. Whatever you want, you can have. Just please come and work with us. Take us to the next level. And initially, John Scully was not interested at all. Apparently, however, what changed his mind were those words uh, on the screen. Do you want to spend your life selling sugared water or do you want to change the world? That was the sales pitch. That's a good line. That's a good line. Do you want to sell, spend your life selling sugared water or do you want to change the world? And I want to suggest to you this morning that the Apostle Paul is saying the same to you and to me. Do you want to spend your life kind of futtering around, looking after yourself and your own comfort and pleasure? Or do you want to play your part in changing the world? Because you can. You can. Um, Paul has already been talking about the global mission that uh, that is going on in his day, uh, as the gospel is going out into the world. Uh, in chapter one, verse six, we read that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is going out and bearing fruit all over the world. Chapter one, verse six. Uh, and then in chapter one, verse twenty-three, he has talked about how the good news, the message about Jesus is being proclaimed to all creation, verse uh, 21. There is a global mission going on. God has this massive, massive plan uh, to bring the good news about Jesus to the world. Uh, And it's to the whole world. Uh, We've already read uh, that these Colossians are Gentiles, they're not Jews. Uh, And so the good news about Jesus uh, is going out to Jew and Gentile, everybody. It's going out to everybody. And it's the good news of how sinful people, no matter who you are, where you're from, or what you've done. The good news of how sinful people, people who are alienated from God, people who are naturally hostile to him and have committed evil deeds, can find, can be given the gift of forgiveness. A full relationship with God. Freedom from all the things that enslave and entangle us. And a fantastic future. That's what's on offer. And that message, as it goes out, is changing the world person by person. As individuals, then respond to this message. And the way to respond is with the Christian ABC. And so, if you're here this morning and you're not yet uh, someone who would say you're a follower of Jesus, the offer here is open to you. All you've got to do is the Christian ABC, admit to God, talk to Him, and admit you've. You failed. You failed to love him and others the way you should have. B, believe. Believe Jesus is who he claims he is. He is God, the son in human form. And that he died on the cross to pay your debt. And then C, commit to live for him as your savior and as your king. And if you do those three things, admit, believe, and commit, then all of those benefits flow to you. And will change you. Paul has emphasized in this letter already. His part in this global mission. Of the good news of Jesus going to the world. He's spoken about how he is a a traveling preacher. uh, And church planter. Uh, and how he has been sharing uh, the good news about Jesus all over the world. Uh, He's the one who's been writing lots of the New Testament. But actually, as Lauren read through this little section with all these lists of names, this long list of names, names that you've never heard of, uh, people that are obscure and unknown to us, initially it all sounds a bit boring. But actually, the point that Paul is making, the point that Paul is making is that as he works to get this good news of Jesus out, He, even he, can't do it on his own. He can't do it on his own. He needs other people to help him. Uh, And here are some of the people, notice, uh, if you glance through the list, people he describes as fellow workers, fellow servants, people that he needed, verse 11, to encourage him when he was struggling. You see, getting this good news out is not just an individual task. It's a task for a whole team of people. And as Paul lists the names here, what he's actually doing, the the reason he writes this is that he is inviting these different people, uh, his readers, to join the team. You can join the team. You can be part of what's going on in the world, uh, how God is changing the world. And so the challenge for each and every one of us, the offer for each and every one of us, is do you want to help uh, to change the world? Do you want to help? And really, we're just going to concentrate on verses 2 to 6 this morning. And in it, we see three things that we can do to play our part in changing the world. Now, just for full disclosure, so you don't panic too much, we're going to spend more time on the first one than the, the second two, okay? So if you think a lot, a lot of time has gone here and we're still on number one, we'll, we'll, we'll speed up, don't worry. We're going to see three things. Three things we can do to play our part in changing the world. Pray devotedly. Pray devotedly. Live wisely and speak carefully. That's, that's very simple. Pray devotedly. Live wisely and speak carefully. If we do those things, we will be playing our part in changing the world. First one then. Pray devotedly, verses 2 to 4. Uh, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Uh, I just want to show you the next little picture on the screen. This is a very famous picture taken in October 1963, and it is the picture of JFK sitting at what's called the Resolute Desk, Solaire, uh, in the Oval Office. Uh, And if you look closely, you'll see at the bottom of the the Resolute desk there is a secret panel uh, that is actually open. uh, And you see his son, John Jr., playing at his feet, looking out as that photo uh, is snapped. Um, That's actually a very poignant picture because within a month, JFK would go travel to Dallas and there he would be assassinated just see the loss. It's just striking. He's only a little boy. He's not even three yet. Uh, And so this is a poignant picture of temporary intimacy and amazing access that this little boy enjoyed to his dad, who was the president of the United States. But it was only temporary. And in this letter, Paul has been telling us that we have a far greater privilege, far greater access, and it's permanent, not just temporary, that we can speak if we are trusting in Jesus and are committed to him, we can speak and our voices are heard in the throne room uh, of heaven. Paul has, been, has opened the letter by talking about prayer, uh, what he prays for these, these Colossians. He's prayed giving thanks first uh, that, that for their faith and for their hope and for their love. And then he goes on to say, I also am praying for you that you grow in your faith, mature. Um, and he finishes now by talking about prayer, but it's not just that he likes He's a careful writer and he likes bookending things. He likes neatness and symmetry. No, no, this is the, the conclusion to what is, in many ways, the argument of the book so far. He's been talking about who Jesus is, his divine identity. He's been talking about Jesus' supreme authority. Uh, he's been talking about our unity, our being united to him by faith. And if we are connected to Jesus, then we get to enjoy all the privileges Jesus has. Which means then we have an intimate access to the Heavenly Father. And so Paul is saying, in light of who you are and your connection with Jesus, you have an extraordinary privilege that your voice can be heard in the throne room of heaven and that God hears and that God is attentive, and that God will answer. And so Paul says, in light of all of that, in light of your amazing privilege and amazing access through Jesus, then devote yourselves to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. And that little word, devote, carries with it, I think, two ideas. Two ideas, devote yourselves to prayer. It carries with it the idea of passion, and it carries with it the idea of priority. First, it carries with it the idea of passion, passion. Now, when I say prayer, I do wonder what sort of images pop into your head. And I suspect if you're like me and you've grown up in a, from a Christian background, when I say the word prayer, maybe pictures like this might pop into your head. Four 80-plus-year-old ladies on hard plastic chairs in a cold church hall Praying for some missionary in Indonesia, right? That's maybe with long periods of silence in that, okay? That's maybe some ideas that some of you have. And prayer, look, prayer is a practice. It is something that you're called to do. But I want you to see that the goal of prayer is, and and the prayer is so much more, because the goal of prayer is actually relationship, relationship. And so it's not surprising then that Paul uses this relational word, devote yourselves to prayer. Even in English, we can say, uh, we can talk of a husband being devoted to his wife. And you're saying more than just, he does some stuff for her. It carries with it this idea of passion and commitment and love and connection. Um, I know that some of you um, uh, Who are married Some of you who are dating Some of you who are engaged Have a regular date night With your partner um, You'll go out for, for a meal uh, And you'll chat together Now what is the goal of that conversation? Conversation is an art form You need to practice it To be good at it, of course But what's the goal of the conversation? So that your tongue gets the opportunity to get a bit of exercise? Is that, is that the goal of it? No, the, the goal of the conversation is that you experience the relationship and connect and reconnect with the other person. Isn't that the point? The point is relationship. That's why you're chatting together. Uh, in the same sense, that's what we are given the opportunity to do with prayer. Um, Paul Miller, he's written a brilliant little book called A Praying Life, Uh, and in it he says these words. This is what prayer is. Prayer is simply the medium through which we experience and connect with God. Does the Christian life feel dry and dusty? Does God feel distant to you? Well, then Paul Miller, Paul the Apostle, would ask, are you devoting yourself to prayer? Because that is how we connect. That is how we sense the presence of God. That is how we feel a sense of his love to become real on our hearts, that he is attentive to our voice. Prayer is a medium through which we connect to God. Do you want to connect with God? Then prayer should be your passion. But secondly, prayer should also be your priority. Devotion carries with it the idea of discipline as well. We should make prayer a priority. Back in chapter 1, verse uh, 29, Paul has talked about his work. Uh, And in it he says, eh, to this end, I labor is what I'm working for, struggling with all the energy which so powerfully works in me. In other words, for me to do what I do, For me to be faithful, uh, for me to be fruitful, I desperately need God's power to work in me. And I want to suggest if the Apostle Paul had to say that, then how much more do you and I need the power of God to work uh, in our lives? Uh, So we are desperately needy people. We are desperately needy people. We need God to be at work uh, in our lives. uh, And we need God... And uh, we need to be asking God to work in our lives, to, um, to energize, to animate uh, and sustain us. Uh, if we are to keep trusting, uh, if we're to keep serving, if we're to be faithful and fruitful, we need God's power to work in our lives. And God wants us to relate to him, for him to energize us. Um, a friend of mine put it like this, if you had to take a pill, if you had to take a pill every day to stay alive and to stay healthy, would you ever be too tired? Would you ever be too busy? Would you ever forget to take it? Would you? Maybe, maybe an odd day, but not regularly, because it should be a, its absolute priority. Keep you alive. Uh, in the same way, Paul is saying, prayer is like the pill for you spiritually. It keeps you alive and healthy. It should be a priority in your life. I hope this isn't overstating it. Um, I hope it's not. Um, But someone has, has put it like this. What tracks are to the train, prayer is to the power of God. I don't think that's overstating it. What tracks are to the train, prayer is to the power of God. God has set up this universe so that prayer is the mechanism he uses to bring about his power and purpose in our lives and in the lives of other people around us. We are to make prayer a priority. We're to make prayer a priority. Prayer should be our passion. It's the way which we connect to God Uh, And prayer should be our priority because we are deeply needy people. And so as we come to the cusp of a new year, what is it that we can do, should do, to make prayer our passion and our priority? Does it involve practically setting the alarm clock a little earlier in the morning? Maybe you're not a morning person. Maybe for you, it would be just setting aside a little bit of your day guarding that part of your day and going for a walk praying as you walk for others we we know we we struggle with this and so partnering with others is incredibly helpful for us Uh, perhaps you want to get into a a prayer partner a prayer triplet uh, and regularly be praying together we have a prayer meeting uh, every second Wednesday night and we are desperately needy church If we want God to be at work at all among us, we need to commit together to pray together and ask for God to work. If we want to see people converted, if we want to keep going and keep faithful, we need to pray together, and that will be a brilliant way for you to be involved. Paul doesn't give us any rules and regulations, notice. He doesn't tell us about when we should do it, the location or the length, your your posture, uh, he doesn 't tell any of, he doesn 't sp- spell out any of that there 's incredible freedom with how you do it, uh, but he does give us two attitudes that we should cultivate uh, as we come to prayer they 're there uh, at the end of verse two being watchful and thankful, being watchful and thankful first being watchful carries with it the idea of being alert. Now, of course, we all come to when we pray so often, we're tired and we're distracted. And so, of course, it's a, it's a good idea to maybe get out from under the duvet uh, of your warm and cozy bed in the morning if you're going to concentrate to pray. That's probably a good idea. Um, although I don't actually think that's what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about alert, physical alertness uh, and concentration. Um, I actually think he is echoing the words of the Lord Jesus here. Uh, This word being watchful uh, is the same term Jesus used back in Matthew 25 verse 13 where he told his disciples to keep watch for his return. Uh, And so often if you read through the, the, the times this word is used in the New Testament it is connected to the return of the Lord Jesus. And that actually makes sense Uh, with what Paul has already been saying just glance back to chapter 3 verse 4 when Christ who is your life appears you will also appear with him in glory he is Jesus is coming back he is coming back he's coming back in glory and if if that is a reality uh, in your mind then that is going to shape and motivate your prayers isn't it it's going to shape and motivate your prayers what you pray for Increasingly, you're going to be praying for things that will matter when Jesus comes back again and not just now, aren't you? You're going to look at other people who you rub shoulders with and you're going to be praying for them that they're ready to meet the Lord Jesus when he comes back again. You will look at them who are, have no thought for God and your heart will go out to them with compassion. You'll be desperate that they come to know him. Uh, if you keep that idea in your mind, being watchful for Jesus' return, because he could come back at any time, you could come back at any time, then that should motivate and shape our prayers. Be watchful, be thankful. That's the second attitude you're to have when you come to pray: be thankful. This is a drum that Paul's been beating all the way through this letter. Actually, it's a good exercise for you to take a pen or a highlighter and circle circle every word, English word, gratitude or thanks in the word of Coloss- in the book of Colossians, and you'll find it everywhere. Everywhere you see grace, undeserved kindness, and gratitude should go together like a hand and glove. They should always go together. And we should, uh, as Christians, if you know the story in Luke, we should be those ones who regularly reenact that story when Jesus healed 10 um, lepers. And only one of them, who was a Samaritan, not even one of the people of God, came back with stunned gratitude to the Lord Jesus, conscious that he didn't deserve anything and wonderfully grateful for what the Lord Jesus has done. That should be our attitude constantly. Jesus is, we've been reading in Colossians, Jesus is the creator. Everything physical you have and enjoy, your health, strength, abilities, the the roof over your head, the food in your tummy, uh, your family around you, your friends, your job, whatever physically you enjoy and have in this world is a gift. You should be thankful. And then on top of that, you have everything spiritually. Forgiveness, a fullness in your relationship with God, freedom and a future. We should be incredibly thankful people as we come to pray to God. And so as well as praising God and confessing our sins and being thankful to God, what then should we ask him for? What should we ask him for if we come with that sort of attitude? Well, Paul tells us in verse 3, What are they to pray for? Here's a good example. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Verse 4, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Paul says we should pray regularly for two things, open doors and open mouths. Open doors and open mouths. I think it is a shocking thing that Paul asks these Colossians to pray for. Remember where Paul is. He is in prison. He's in prison for which I am in chains. He's in prison. And Paul doesn't ask them to pray for an open door to his prison cell. That's what I'd be asking them to pray. Could you open the door to the prison cell? Or at the very least make the food better? Or at the very least maybe if I could have a bed Uh, or even to take the chains off. That would be nice. Maybe pray for some of those things. Paul says, no, no, no. Here's a bigger priority in his mind and in his life. Pray for an open door, opportunities to talk about the Lord Jesus. The assumption here is that God is able and that God is in control of everything. That God is in control of circumstances, that God is in control of diaries, that God is in control of the weather, that God is in control of people's moods, so that he can superintend and organize the situation and put the people in the right place just at the right time, just when they're feeling that particular way, so that they are open to hearing about the Lord Jesus. I think that's wonderfully encouraging that God is able to do that. Uh, and that, that, therefore, that is something that we should pray for. And so as we come into this season where we have a fantastic opportunity that every Christmas gives us, uh, both formally and informally, formally next Sunday as we have two carol services where we get the opportunity where people would come to church when normally they'll never darken the door. But for a carol service, because it's Christmassy, they might come. What a brilliant opportunity! Are you praying that people will come informally? We've all sorts at parties, uh, whether family parties, work parties. We we do people open up, have a chance to chat. Are we praying for opportunities to talk about our faith, to talk about the Lord Jesus to other people? A friend of mine put it this way: when I don't pray, those coincidences don't happen. Uh, and when I do pray, those coincidences happen more often. Strange, isn't it? We should be praying for opportunities to speak about our faith. But it's one thing to have the opportunity. <laughs> it's entirely a different thing to take the opportunity, to be brave enough, uh, to be compassionate enough for their greatest needs, to be brave enough that maybe risks some uh, embarrassment or even a bit of mockery and ridicule, to take that opportunity and speak up, for the Lord Jesus to, to speak clearly as we should we need to pray for open doors and open mouths and can I ask you selfishly don't do this very often but can I ask you selfishly as I stand up in front of you and a whole bunch of your friends and family I hope and pray pray that I would be as clear as I can possibly be uh, and that God would use my kind of fumbling words to convey the truth of his love for them this Christmas. Please pray for me. But pray also for yourselves, as I said, for opportunities informally this year that you would proclaim the good news about the Lord Jesus as you should. What's our first step then if we are to change the world person by person? Well, if we're to be part of changing the world, here's the first step. Pray devotedly. Pray devotedly. Make it your passion. Make it your priority. Pray for open doors. Pray for open mouths. Um, And you can be part of what God is doing in this world. I think that's exciting, uh, even if it is challenging. Second step then. Pray devotedly. Verse 5. Live wisely. Live wisely. Verse 5. Be wise in the way that you act uh, towards outsiders, make the most of every opportunity. Now, how do you make the most of every opportunity? What does that look like in practice? Uh, is it when someone says, Phew, it's hot today? Do you say, Phew, opportunity? Uh, I know of somewhere hotter, uh, and uh, if you want to avoid going there, uh, here's how you talk about <laughs> is that is that making the most of every opportunity? Don't do that. Don't, don't do that. That would be ridiculous, right? What is making the most of every opportunity? Notice the order of verse 5. It's really important. Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. It's as you practice the Christian life and live wisely, your behavior will provoke questions about your belief. It will come from them not from you. As you live wisely, it will provoke questions about your belief. What does it mean to live wisely? Well, Paul has talked about uh, living wisely, uh, about wisdom, sorry, already in this letter back in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Uh, Paul says this, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Notice the connection. Wisdom is connected with Jesus. Wisdom is connected with Jesus. You want to live wisely, towards outsiders, that is those outside the church, that is those who do not yet know, love, and serve the Lord Jesus, if you want to act wisely towards them, start by looking at how Jesus acted towards those around him. How did Jesus act? Well, Paul has already given us some very common descriptions of Jesus' action and attitude in chapter 3, just a little earlier. Uh, Paul, in verses uh, 12 uh, and 13, uh, has already spoken about what our activity uh, should look like. It involves putting on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. It means being loving and patient and forbearing with those around you. What does it mean to live wisely? That's what it means to live wisely. To act as Jesus acted. And to try to learn from him and imitate him in the way that he interacted with those around him. That's what it means to live wisely. And as we behave like that, inevitably, inevitably, it will provoke questions about your belief it will. Uh, let me tell you about Jane. Uh, Jane and I overlapped at university. Um, she came from uh, quite a secular, non-religious household, uh, came to study at Jordanstown. Uh, this is a very small province. I won't tell you what she studied in case you can work out who she is. Um, she came and studied at Jordanstown, and in her course, in God's amazing kindness, were a whole bunch of Christians. She got to know them. Uh, She then went home one weekend and spoke to her mum and uh, said that she'd met some serious Christians. Um, Her mum allegedly, according to Jane, uh, her mum allegedly said, We warned you about the danger of alcohol. We warned you about the danger of drugs. Uh, We warned you about the danger of men who prey on women but we forgot to warn you about Christians. Watch out for that lot. And she did, she watched them. And she saw not only were they diligent in the way they went about their work, but she saw in that particular group whom she became uh, part of her friendship group, uh, she saw in them a joy despite their circumstances that she did not have she saw in them a depth of patience and commitment to their friendship that she did not experience. And she was intrigued, she was intrigued. And so when they invited her along to a mission week, she came along and she began to hear for the first time about who the Lord Jesus was. She got past the Sunday school lessons, got back to the Jesus of real history, examined his real claims, and she had hundreds of questions, and one by one her questions were answered, and she came to know and to love the Lord Jesus and was part of a church locally here. Do you see how you live your life inevitably provokes questions about what you believe. Your behavior will provoke questions about your belief. it will, it will. And so the challenge then that we should be taking up is endeavouring with God's help and it can only be with God's help of course but endeavouring with God's help to live lives that please him uh, to follow the example uh, of the Lord Jesus but notice there's a massive there's a massive assumption in verse 5 a massive assumption and the massive assumption is this that you are living close enough and openly enough with friends and family who don't yet know Jesus, that they are able to see that there's something different in your life. You're not just hanging around with Christians all the time in a little ghetto, but you have people in your life that you have a deep relationship with, so much so that they see that there's something different in you. They get to see it. They see um, when uh, things don't go well for you, They see that, yes, that you're disappointed, but that you're not devastated because you have the hope of the gospel. Uh, When things are going well, they see that you're delighted, but they see that you're not proud. When real tragedy strikes, they see that you have as many tears uh, as they do, but they see that you have hope, resurrection hope that cannot be touched and that becomes incredibly intriguing and attractive to a watching world. And it will provoke questions, conversations, and opportunities for us to naturally share with those who are willing to listen. I think that's a good definition of evangelism. Sharing the gospel, sharing our faith with those who are willing to listen. That's what it is. Um, and that is the second step then in how we can, li- we can be part of God's plan to bring real change in this world. Pray devotedly, live wisely. But then when we do get the opportunity to speak, how should we speak? How should we speak? Verse six, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Uh, In verse 6, Paul talks about our words, and he describes our words in two ways. Number one, we should use gracious words. We should use gracious words. Words that are full of grace. Words that are gentle. Words that are respectful. Words that endeavor to be understanding. We do that flight of imagination Where we try to put ourselves in the shoes of the person we're talking to, to try to understand their questions and concerns. Um, We try to be respectful and gentle, even where we have to disagree with how they look at the world. Never doing it with self righteousness, never trying to force the gospel down someone's throat and telling them that they're just wrong and sinful and evil. Absolutely not. We are to be gentle and respectful. That's just part of being kind. It's part of being kind. But notice that we're also to have gracious words, but also salty words. It's a strange phrase, isn't it? Our words are to be seasoned with salt. What does that mean? Um, in the first century, salt was used for a whole bunch of things. It was used uh, before the days of refrigerators. It was rubbed into meat to preserve it. Uh, it was used as an ingredient to fertilizer. But the most common way salt was used is the most common way salt 's used today uh, to flavor food to make it appealing and interesting And I think that 's the idea that Paul is getting at here that our conversation should be relevant, interesting. And appealing to the person that we're talking to. Uh, That means we've got to do uh, a bit of work to get to know that person because every person you talk to is different. Every person. They have different experience, they have different background, they have different struggles, uh, they have different trials that they're facing. Um, So that means when they come, when every single person comes to the claims of Jesus. Uh, They have a different set of questions and a different set of concerns, often which are absolutely unique to them. And so sharing the gospel, sharing the good news of Jesus is not about rhyming off some script that we have learned. I want to suggest that will be much less than helpful. It's trying to understand who you're speaking to. And trying to address their particular questions, their unique concerns. Sharing the good news about Jesus in a way that is understanding, that is relevant, and that is appealing to them. Uh, I don't know if I have the quote from Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer is a, a hero of mine in many ways, a theologian, a philosopher, a great Christian thinker. Uh, but he said, "This: if I had five, mi- if I had fifty-five minutes uh, to to speak of my faith, uh, I would spend—or sorry, an hour—to speak of my faith. I would spend the first fifty-five minutes asking them questions, listening carefully to their answers, and only then, in the last five minutes, would I have something relevant to say to them." That's a challenge, isn't it? We're so often so interested in just blurting out what we think we need to say rather than being interested in the concerns and questions of the other person. Um, We need to do three things. I think we need to cultivate good relationships. So as we go into this new year, one thing for you to think about is, is there anyone in your life who doesn't know Jesus well yet that you think you should cultivate a deeper, more meaningful relationship with them, whether or not they convert. Will you love them whether or not they convert? But cultivate that deep, meaningful relationship so they can see the difference Jesus makes in your life so that you may have naturally opportunities to speak for him. Then, of course, we need to sow the truth. Cultivate the good relationships. Sow the truth naturally where we get the opportunity. And Just to point out, you do not need to say everything all the time. You do not need to say everything all the time. Uh, Answer their question when it comes. Deal with their concern, that one concern when it comes. And play the long game. And then thirdly, hopefully, by God's grace, we'll be there to see the reaping. Be there to see someone make the decision. To come and trust the Lord Jesus for themselves. Uh, I, this this quote is um, ascribed to Teddy Roosevelt. I haven't been able to nail down where he said it, so it's a bit it's a tentative a tentative ascription here. Uh, but apparently, he said, "People won't care what you know until they know that you care." I. That's very true. People won't care about what you know unless they know that you care. How are we going to change the world? And the joy is we do. We have this wonderful opportunity because we know the true and the living God uh, is that we get to play our part in changing the world. How do we do it? How do we do it? We do it by praying devotedly. We do it by living wisely. And we do it by speaking carefully. Let me pray for us before I hand back to.